Welcome to episode five of season three of Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm joined by my co-host, Mr. Peter Crable. The one and only. How you doing? Mr. Crabes, it's good to see you. Nice to see you. Welcome back. It's been It's been a while. Too long, I would say. Yeah. It's been a month since we've taped a show. It has been, yeah. Um, And we we don't have any show feedback this time (laughs) (laughs) at all. But you can find us uh, at Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter, and you can always... Go to our website, edsnotdead.com, and uh, I am, I'm back on Twitter with my old Twitter account, which is now an account where somebody can tweet me. That's right. At R.W. Dodd. Yeah, please do. I know you don't like it when we do our personal Twitter. No, now we're here. good. We're good now? Yeah. You okay. were you were embargoed I was for a little while there, yeah. but now you're back. Yeah. So not that anyone would want to reach me, but at R.W. Dodd on Twitter. Yes. We've got a great show tonight. Yeah. We are going to dive into the wildfires that have been ravaging California. Yes. And we have a very special guest on, Ricardo Cano, who writes for Cal Matters and has done an extensive expose on the impacts of wildfires on education in the state of California. Yeah, some of the stats uh, he's going to share with us from the, from his from his research and study is pretty staggering in terms of the number of students that have missed school one and, and just how... Uh, wide-reaching and far-spread the impact has been in terms of just sheer percentage of California students being impacted by wildfires and school closures. Yeah, uh, the the piece that he did is pretty amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, And we also are going to review the nation's report card. Yes. NAEP is out. How'd we do, Mr. Krabs? Um, You know. What kind of student is the United States? I would call us pretty average to below average as, as a whole. But that can be one of the things we talk about, is how much stock to put into yet another standardized test. And Secretary DeVos pretty much blames federal education policy for our, our flat scores. Well, the lack of freedom. The lack really, of freedom, right. Is really what right. is to blame. Right. Choice. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Choice solves all. So um, when did this become a two-man show? I don't, yeah. <laughs> I'm sitting in not my seat right now. I know. Look at you, dude. <laughs> Mr. Crable, uh, for our audience, is in a seat that's usually occupied by the one and only C.H. Siddons. Right. But we kicked him out of the show. We did. We did finally. Just one too many hot takes. I know. To, to yeah, bear. Yeah. Really. His, his politics and uh, his. It's just un- unbearable. <laughs> you said there was no show feedback. Come on. Got a lot of Casey feedback. It is very, it, it, it's very strange in the Dodd Man Cave to not have have CH Siddons. It here. is a little weird. Yes. But uh, we have a big announcement, and we are so excited. It's the big announcement of uh, season three, episode five, it which is, is that um, Mr. Siddons and his better half, Sarah Siddons, are the proud new parents of Frida Siddons. Yeah, congratulations! Well, welcome to the world, Frida. Uh, well, and, she's. I'll, I'm, I'll speak for Frida. She she says hi. Okay. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Mr. Siddons. Hello. First satellite <laughs> show recording. I know we're we're excited about it, and um, we were actually yeah. we were actually lukewarm about doing this, about having you on. <laughs> Do you mean like you or or both of you? <laughs> no, we're excited to have you. We want a we want a full update, and we know that our audience does on how beautiful Frida's doing. Frida's doing great. Uh, we're trying to get her up to fighting weight at, uh, as we speak. Um, she got a, a 1450 on her SAT already. <laughs> and uh, she scored really, really, really good on the name. Oh, she did well on the name. Yeah. Uh, that's because of, uh, of her mom. Speaking of her mom, how's she doing? Uh, 
uh, Sarah is doing awesome. She is a trooper. Um, it really, the whole process, it was a C-section. The whole process makes you uh, in awe of two things. One, women are amazing and incredibly powerful people. And two is the, uh, the, the wonders of medical science. Just get that baby right on out. I we we went in at nine fifty eight. We were the baby was born at ten twenty four. Wow. Yeah, I was sitting in a meeting, um, and you sent that picture, which I really wish we could post to at Ed's Not Dead PC of yourself pre delivery, which is one of the <laughs> yeah. funniest pictures that I've ever seen. <laughs> uh, uh, and then literally, I I. I sat through another forty-five minutes of the meeting, and then all of a sudden, Frida was Frida was here. She was there. Yeah. So it so yeah. It, so it all came off without a hitch, huh? I, I w- no hitches, and uh, we were in and out of the hospital in a couple days, few days, and uh, we we you know we would post pictures, but then I would get in trouble with my dad because we've already put a put a <laughs> we had to put uh, some full stops out about him posting any pictures of Frida on Facebook. Oh, okay. So he's, it is the proud grandparent thing to do. They do. They do enjoy doing that. Yes. So he's been embargoed, also. He's been completely embargoed, and to his credit, I told he he's been pushing me initially about posting pictures of her, and uh, to his credit, I told him no, we don't feel comfortable with doing it. He he's, he didn't put up much of a fight. Hey. Well, Good. Me. Are the are the grandparents there? All four of them? No, they actually left yesterday. Oh, were they there that long? They, they came uh, Monday, so a week or so after the birth, and they stayed for until this morning. Okay, good. And yeah. and they were generally helpful, I'm sure. They were 100% helpful. My mom cleaned um, almost my entire house. Oh, nice. my dad My dad told me all the ways that I'm doing wrong with my organization <laughs> and all the things that I have in my house. Well, hopefully he fixed it for you as well. He didn't just give me feedback. He didn't fix it. Just, just gave me feedback oh, on it. You know, very helpful. Come on. And, uh, you know, so all's well. All right, good. So, um, I I would like to say, though, even though I'm usually taken off guard with the feedback portion of the show, we got significant feedback on that last episode that I'd like to share with everybody. Oh, look at. Look at our lack of including Casey in the in the planning. Well, Going back to bite us. I, well, I'm looking at I'm looking at the show feedback box on white blank. It's completely blank. You didn't. <laughs> yeah, you obviously well, didn't put it in there, did you? Well, let, let me tell you that uh, on Facebook, which I despise, we posted up uh, the 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 recent the episode with Randy Weingarten, and we got comments out the wazoo from from our loyal listeners. I forgot about that. It's, yeah. I wanted to share a few with you, uh, and I would love to, to direct our listeners to an exchange that occurred with one of our very loyal listeners, Andrew Kozlowski, and my high school U.S. history teacher that went on for about two hours. Oh, boy. Uh, it was pretty funny. But uh, so I'll, I'll share one from Ken. He said, public education is an interesting state with the shift of political power. Park is gone. And he said, I imagine the Trump administration will continue to reduce federal demands related to education, especially if he wins in 2020. And and then said, keep the podcast coming. And we had a lot of folks that said, uh, that thank you for your support of the teaching community. Great discussions. Um, and then we had an interesting one that uh, was posted. I don't know. If, did I share it with you all about the one that came from the YouTube 
comment? No. I don't I don't remember that. No. I, <laughs> no, I don't remember that. Well, you guys have to keep keep your eye on all the different YouTube uh, Did you see it in Australia or are we still banned there? Are we banned in Australia? We are still banned. Uh, <laughs> we're still we're still banned in, in Australia. Uh, if I find the YouTube one, I'll share it with you all. But anyway, the, the Facebook comments were great. Uh, Andrew Kozlowski, again, Mr. Koz, he said after that Randy interview, he said teaching in and itself is a political act. The idea that a teacher should be a neutral observer is bunk. Teachers should be sharing their beliefs and creating a culture of respectful dialogue in class. What do you think? Yeah, I saw that he posted that, and I, um, I, I read it and thought about it for about five seconds, and then moved on. Um, <laughs> deep thoughts. I, I didn't really give it deep thoughts because, uh, in spirit, I, I agree with him. I, I'm not sure um, that in practice, I, I'm totally with him on that. Uh, well, I, it's, and I find it interesting because. My high school history teacher, who I have a great deal of respect for, uh, he, he he took major issue with the uh, comment that Kaz had. And he said, the process is education. It's not proselytizing. It's not brainwashing. And then Kaz said, okay, do you teach both sides of climate change? If you support one side, you're proselytizing. Do you teach creationism along with evolution? Do you just do you discuss the pros and cons of slavery? Um, so it was interesting. It went pretty in the weeds very quickly between a few folks that but, I never thought I'd see. But isn't that? Uh, yeah, no, that's 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 great back and forth. Isn't isn't teaching both sides of an issue or multiple perspectives different than what Kaz has said about wearing one's beliefs on their sleeve in the classroom? That's a good point, and I think you have to be. I think you have to be very careful as to how you're explaining things and how you're bringing up uh, uh, controversial topics or, or laws or political figures, especially things that are happening so quickly like this impeachment stuff that's happening every single day, every right. hour of the day. Right. You have to be up on everything. and You have to be very, very well informed to to just make sure that there's not someone that's feeling uncomfortable or that someone doesn't feel like that you're trying to push your point of view on them. Yeah, I mean, my you know, my son is in is in tenth grade and he's taking national, state, and local government, um, and he recently had to respond to a prompt where he had to um, talk about his his views on sanctuary cities. Um, wow! And and I, I thought it was great because obviously they were in in that class. Kids were taking multiple positions on that topic. Right. Um, and the teacher was allowing that to happen. So that's that's healthy. Um, Mr. Krabs, you're the one that asked uh, President Weingarten that question. What, what are your what are your thoughts on it? Well, I, I, I think most to what she said, and I, I kind of feel like she gave me and or us as educators in general permission to to have personal viewpoints. You know, we're not robots. We are people. And her point, I think, was that schools – in classrooms don't exist in a vacuum and to pretend like they do is disingenuous and it's not like these issues don't come up and it's not like these issues aren't at the forefront of students minds in some cases so therefore you should be able to speak about them now 
I do think the sort of slippery slope in the matter is, um, you know, teachers are in a position of authority, yeah. um, you know, and, and just so that you're not coercing students and you're not, quote unquote, brainwashing them either into uh, specific points of view when they're in, on, in some cases there can be multiple valid points of view, even if right. you ascribe strongly to one over the other. It's, you know, and right. maybe that's as a whole, you know, some of what we've lost in this country, I blame social media, um, for thoughtful and rational discourse on difficult topics. Yeah, I agree. And then it gets into the issue are, you know, are we too easily offended? And and have we have we allowed kids to be too easily offended? We've 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 talked about that on the show. You've been listening to too much Hannity, huh? No, no, no. I'm just I'm just saying, I mean, that's where some people would go with a conversation. If a teacher did, did, did speak openly about their beliefs, there would be the question of, are you potentially offending someone? And I think further, um, when you <laughs> Hannity, I'm not watching Hannity. What the heck? <laughs> Sorry, Rush. Um, but I do think oh, I lost my point. I got sidetracked. Uh, in, in I got it as he was insulting me. I, uh, one of the things that I found teaching ancient history is you could you could talk about current day issues couched in uh, ancient world history. Like we were talking about, to what extent was Julius Caesar a hero or a tyrant? I mean, you're you're talking about the foundations of republic, like republicanism with a small r, and democratic beliefs, and an executive power and the separation of powers. Yeah, yeah you could definitely go so like, well into there's that. There's not really much of you're not gonna you're not gonna annoy uh, people. You're not gonna end up on the local news by by having kids uh, think about critically think about. The, the extent to which a, uh, an ancient world leader was a hero or a tyrant, but you can still talk about things, current events, and in, in couched in ancient debates. And I, yeah, and I, the, I now remember my point. Um, you know, especially as areas in this country become uh, less and less diverse ideologically, um, you know, it, it can be challenging for adults and/or kids um, to to kind of go against the norm. You know, so if you right. let's just say you're an ardent Trump supporter and you're kind of in a sea of blue where the vast majority of people um, do not support him or his policies, you know, that could be a, a tough position to be in. Um, and, and the reverse would be true as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I would also say, I mean, I know that unions in and of themselves are, you know, I mean, I'm, uh, th- there are lots of union members that don't see political issues the same, um, but the the perception in this country is that you know political speech and, and unions are I mean unions lean left, and that's what right. most that's what most folks folks think. Although it was interesting when when Randy dropped that charter school bomb on us at the end of the interview, that was really <laughs> shocking. That yeah. was what I hope people I hope people caught that. I hope so. Well, yeah. it's. And unions are not are not a monolith. I mean, no, they're not. I, I was I, I, I was thinking about it recently because there are some practices in the secondary world that a lot of conservative education thinkers agree with, like giving zeros uh, or allowing kids to lose credit or things like that. Like there are certain things that don't necessarily go along with what people think unions believe in at carte blanche. No, yeah, you're right. I mean, but then again, there are lots of conservative thinkers about education that that espouse espouse things that lots of lot. I, I think a broad spectrum of educators could agree on. For example, 
you know, rigor and, 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 um, primary sources and all those kinds of things. I mean, those are, those are, those are areas where I think, uh, uh, a continuum of educators could agree on practice. Don't you? Absolutely. Yep. I mean, our, our, our friend, um, in, uh, in the NAEP scores, uh, Michael Petrilli, um, talks about, he, he actually credits sticking to, to sticking to common core. Um, and he, he's a, he's a prolific writer for the Fordham Institute, mm-hmm. um, as a reason why two Southern states in particular, Mississippi and Louisiana have shown consistent gains on NAEP. Right. Um, so anyway, all right. Well, listen. Are you are you going to stick around for the next segment, there, Mr. Siddons? I, I I would love to stick around, and I would like to provide one last piece of feedback from Facebook, uh, from Kelly Phillips, our friend. She said that my she said this is our my favorite educational podcast is always thought provoking, and she said Randy was dead on about our needing to ask and answer the question quote What is the role? and charge of public education. We need to recognize that public education is not just about educating my child. The individualistic nature of American society often leaves it at that point. As a society, we need to understand and value that public education is about the public good. When we shift that mindset, teachers will have the respect they deserve, all students will have the education they deserve, and our society will have the future that we need. You go, KP. Very very well said. Yes, awesome. All right. Uh, all right, folks, don't go away. We are lucky to have C.H. Siddons on the call in for the show. Brand new dad. Not as much as disaster as I feared it was going to be. <laughs> no, it's, it's been pretty good. And Mr. Crable's doing OK in your seat, uh, Casey. All right. So when we come back, we are going to talk about the nation's report card. Nate, don't go away. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to Ed's Not Dead. I'm Robbie Dodd. I'm still here and joined by my co-hosts, one sitting next to me, Mr. Peter Crable. In person. And our guy on the phone, new papa. How you doing? Hey. You, you still with us? I'm still here. During the break, there was an episode of Frida crying. There was. <laughs> but she's she's better now. Yeah, she's, she's, she's feeding, so that's very helpful. That's good. That's good. And you're in a quiet room. Yeah. We won't, right. we won't tolerate any noise from any any children on this show. Yep, none. <laughs> <laughs> we don't like our kids. <laughs> How many kids do we have? So we have we have we're up to six. Six. What? Six kids between the three of us. Half a dozen. <laughs> that is pretty sweet. We got a we got a Frida's the sixth man. That's right. She's the, she's the she's the sixth woman coming off the bench. That's right. All right, so it is time to dive into what's generally considered the nation's report card, which is the NAEP scores, the National Assessment of Educational Progress. Uh, Mr. Crable handpicked a compendium of views Mm -hmm. on these scores in Education Next. There's some interesting takes. Some of them, I I think it's safe to say, tend to lean towards the more conservative end of the educational interpretation spectrum generally yeah yep um the long and short of it uh you two are here you go you ready give us some data okay it's pretty basic okay uh fourth and eighth graders are tested 
So for the most recent results of NAEP, the big one that's caused um, quite a bit of um, chagrin amongst educational pundits is eighth grade reading dropped by four points and on average, and basically uh, those scores are really no different than scores 10 to 20 years ago. So our eighth graders have, have regressed and have not shown progress. Fourth grade reading and eighth grade math were largely flat, uh, slight decreases in those two grades in reading and math, respectively. And then finally, the only very, very, very slight bright spot was fourth grade math increased slightly. Yes. So the long and short of it is we had fourth grade and eighth grade math about the same or a little better, and fourth and eighth grade reading both both decreasing yes. uh, across the nation. Now, there are other interesting factoids in this data, um, one of which is students in the lower end of the achievement distribution uh, generally are losing ground on NAEP. Yes. Uh, students in the higher upper end of the achievement distribution have shown some progress, um, especially in the last 10 years. Yes. Uh, and another interesting thing was urban areas tend to be making, I don't know if steady progress is, is maybe that's too strong a claim, but overall in the last 10 years, um, urban settings scores have increased. Uh, in this article, the District of Columbia is cited as, um, as a system that has shown um, really consistent progress in their standardized test scores. So I start out with you guys. How much, how much do we? How much stock do we put into NAEP and these results? Um, some. I mean, I, I don't think you can discount it. I think it is. It's a good test by all measures. Yeah, it it you know it it, it kind of sort of is what it is. So I don't want to go down the road of saying, oh, it's it's just another standardized test, even though it is. But I also think that you can't ignore the results, and by and large taken as a whole, the results are stagnant for the nation's fourth and eighth graders. And so I do think that that bears some amount of analysis. I do think that that bears some sort of soul searching. I do think that bears some conversations about, okay, where do we go next? None of those things, I don't think there's anything wrong with any of those viewpoints. I think the only qualm that I would have, um, and, and we can get a, a little bit later, is anybody such as Secretary DeVos out there who who is saying, well, this is, you know, a condemnation of all schools across the country, and this is just yet another piece of evidence that schools are terrible, blah, 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 blah. I don't think it's that. I think it gives us a snapshot of where we are, and in its most positive light, I think it can compel us to move forward and sort of recharge us and give us renewed purpose to continue to serve our students better. And just like anything else in the, in the nation, in a case, I'll, I'll let you go in just a sec. I mean, the, 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 the increases and decreases are certainly, just like anything else in the United States, are not consistent across the country. I mean, there, totally. were, there, there are states that over the last decade have, have, have made pretty significant progress, um, those that have stayed flat and those that are, 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 are struggling. Um, Mr. Sids, what were you going to say? I'd say my big takeaway on the NAEP every year is just that it's, it is informative, but not instructive. And I, I, I pulled up a brochure that they publish every year uh, that the actual organization pulls up 
they, and they do a myth versus fact sheet. This is from the actual organization that that runs uh, the actual assessment. And one of them is one of the myths that they point out is the NAEP proficient level is like being on grade level. Um, NAEP proficient means competency over challenging subject matter. This is not the same as being on grade level, which refers to performance on local curriculum and standards. It's a general assessment of knowledge and skills in a particular subject. And being that we are a country of 300 million people, you're going to have certain states and certain areas that do better or worse. And if you average it all together, perhaps it's not a, as glowing a review, but I, I don't think that it should be. I don't think it's, um, it's necessarily an indicator of, of failing schools as Betsy DeVos likes to always point out to or find the, they're the kind of folks that try to find every single data point that, that says that we're, that our schools are failing. And I think one thing that's interesting that Robbie kind of pointed out and you did too, is it's, it's an amalgamation of all the data, a lot of different people and there are, states do very widely. And one of the bright spots um, is actually Mississippi who I guess has been making pretty steady progress over the last 10 years. And as, as you said, it's informative, but not instructive. So we can point to some of the things that Mississippi has done um, yeah. in, in the article. Two things that they specifically point to is um, a focus on early childhood literacy uh, is one of right. the reasons, as well as a sort of, I can't remember the quote, but uh, a no-fuss a no commitment to the common core. So they haven't made a big deal about it, but they have stuck with more or less the same curriculum over 10 years. And, if you, you know, speaking from experience, any curriculum that you stick with over a protracted period of time, I do think you're going to get better at it because everybody figures out what it is and how to teach and how best for students to learn. But it is interesting that it's a nationwide test with so many variances amongst different states. It's almost like, well... You know, does it make does that in and of itself make the case for a more widespread federal ed- education policy to sort of even out some of those some of those um, you know mountains and valleys, if you were, in terms of, of data and achievement? One thing that and, and one, Robbie, Robbie, I think you'd appreciate this myth that is noted is that all score changes from year to year always mean improvement or decline in performance. And they said that the fact is that score changes that indicate a true movement in performance for a grade in a particular subject are deemed statistically significant. You can have a score increase of three points or for fourth graders in math from 2013 to 2015, for example, and it may not mean the group as a whole right. truly showed improvement in skills and knowledge if the results did not show statistical significance. Yeah, no, I, that's I, that that's legit. I I. I I will say that one of the things that jumped out at me, at, and I mean, this is at, this is at like the most rudimentary kind of primitive way of reading test scores, and someone that has read them, you know, over the years as a principal quite a bit. Um, from two thousand to two thousand nine, there was there was a, a a general overall drop in the number of students that were below basic and a general overall increase in the amount of students that were proficient. Um, right. and, and given what you said about how you might, one might view proficiency. Um, but that it is interesting that those, that, that those two groups went in opposite directions uh, or those two areas on the test went in opposite directions during that decade, but that's not been the case over the last 10 years. Um, I'm not sure we could isolate one factor. Although, you know, having now, 
that 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 20 years has spanned most of my career um and i and i will say that in that 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 first decade of the 21st century whatever we might say about no child left behind it it really i mean it was kind of a standard that everybody focused on it was a set of expectations of an accountability structure that that was onerous in a lot of ways but i mean it 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 seemed to in some way propel achievement somewhat um and, and and i do think we could probably agree that over the last decade there's been kind of a mishmash of approaches um, across the country. I'm not sure there's been any kind of unifying force like No Child Left Behind was. Right. I mean, Race to the Top certainly never never really caught on collectively across the nation. It was around for a couple of years. Yeah. And, and, and we know, back to your point, Mr. Craves, about the federal government's involvement. Um, I mean, Common Core wasn't even the Fed's thing. But it was it was something that was, you know, I, I think we could all agree that Im- implementation of Common Core lacked a lot of fidelity across the nation. For sure. Yeah. And, and that's one of the interesting things when you look at, at some of the performance data, you know, it, it, it really surprised me because especially in the article, it felt like there was a little bit of wistfulness back to the no child left behind days, yeah. which is like, wow, I, I did. I thought that that was dead and gone and everybody by the end of it was just so over it um, in terms of the accountability and the pretty harsh measures. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the demonization of teachers um, that, that came about a little bit as a result of that. But now looking back, you know, the 74million.org has some pretty interesting uh, tables on there where it gives some snapshots of the different percentiles for uh, grade four reading and grade eight reading. And when you look at from 1998, to 2009, there were some pretty dramatic increases in grade four reading across the board um, for 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 all percentiles, for the lowest percentiles as well as the highest percentiles. You know, and, and part of this, you know, again, going back to Casey's point about being instructive, we don't really know why. It certainly coincided with the years of No Child Left Behind, but do we want to really assign student score increases to... <laughs> draconian uh, <laughs> data measures and accountability, you know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just know that each state in this country probably had different tests that they used to measure progress during NCL, during the NCLB era. That was the big thing was every state could design their own to meet, proficiency correct whatever what, what constituted proficiency but i i don't think anybody could argue that um that that it was it was very clear what schools and what states had to do um and i and that that you know whether you liked that or you didn't like it you resented the standardized testing and the accountability measures and the right kind of the coercive accountability it put on schools and teachers and principals corrective action, AYP, all those things. Um, I know, mean, there was a laser, like you said earlier, there, I mean, there was there, a laser like focus. You, you were, yes. in, you were in a middle school, both of you yeah. that had that laser like focus and you know, you taught to the test. I mean, that's what, that's probably what the nation did for the better part of a decade. 
And I, I I distinctly recall sitting down in meetings where we were looking at the students who were, you know, for, you know, for lack of a better term, they're, they were labeled in our in our strategic monitoring tools or the the Excel spreadsheets as yellow and, and red. And what are we doing for these students? What are we what what supports are we putting in place? And I don't know that I, I can't speak to if it's happening anymore, but I don't I don't recall in my last few years in the middle school that it was occurring on a widespread basis. No, I mean those, you know, response to intervention, interventions for kids, um Really, you know, focusing on basic skills. I mean, all of those things were, um, you know, really prescriptive reading programs as interventions. Uh, I, I, at the time, disagreed with a lot of that. Um, right. But at the same time, it's interesting when you just kind of, it's hard to quantify, but when everybody gets pulling in the same direction on the rope, um, it seems like at least during that era, schools did make progress. Um, based and interestingly, on- the change... There's also a change from the coercive accountability with schools and failing schools, quote unquote, but but to a switch to more individual teacher based evaluation accountability with the edu- with the ESSA Act, where they're or the ESS Act, where they're putting on like the student learning objectives and making sure that teacher evaluations are fifty percent or I'm sorry, student test scores are fifty percent or more of a teacher's evaluation. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of that, you know, happened during. I mean, I think that's what Randy highlighted as as one of her disagreements with Arnie Duncan was was under the race to the top era, you know, evaluating teachers every year. I think you're right, Case. You make a great point that that a, a lot of the onus on improvement fell on schools and principals um, and teachers during No Child Left Behind. But then all of a sudden, it, the, the the accountability switched squarely to the idea of the ineffective versus the effective teacher. Um, and, and, and that's the era we're just kind of coming out of. It didn't, doesn't look like that decade produced much. Right. Although, um, Thomas D who was a professor of education at Stanford university. So he talks about DC specifically. So DC has a pretty, um, teachers are evaluated every year. Um, it's highly tied to student performance. Um, they're, they're well compensated. Those that have been, um, deemed effective. And he points to that as a reason why DC has been able to show steady improvement over the last, you know, 15, 20 years. It's, it's really been a pretty consistent upward trend in terms of um, the closing of the achievement gap and really the raising of achievement across all, all percentiles, all sort of student percentile achievement levels. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think there's probably again. I'm sure that's there's some correlation there. So I guess a question for both of you: do we do we need a little bit more accountability in terms of um, student performance and teachers and or schools and or districts or states? I you know I don't really know who, but some some the higher level of accountability in terms of student performance. Well, I, if I, I think to some degree, yes we shouldn't be using NAEP to drive that train. And um, I think to, to paint a broad brush with NAEP is fine because it is a, a broad brush. It's only looking at the 27 large school districts in the nation or however many. And I don't think it paints a, a, a truly accurate picture of the on-the-ground performance of students in our schools. Um, my other thought on it is, do we need more accountability in schools? 
I think we do, but I think first we need to pay teachers much, much more. And I think we need to give them much more time and and we need to have much more teachers, many more teachers in the schools before we start putting in more coercive accountability measures. Um, that's just my again hot take, which got me kicked off the show in the first place. <laughs> we, we we well, we brought you. This is a. I mean, you're trying out again tonight. Uh, we'll, I know. We'll, we'll my, see how my this probationary goes. Period. Yeah. Um, so if if either of you had to choose, you can only choose one. Oh, okay. Okay. So yeah. you you know what happened. We know what happened with Common Core, and I, I don't mean to – maybe I'm painting with too broad of a brush on Common Core, but um, we know what happened with the idea of, of a standards-based movement that was supposedly going to create a, a level playing field and standards across the nation, right? So would you take national standards or would you take – Increased accountability for performance as the way to go to Im- to improve student achievement. Oh boy! Crable, you go first. <laughs> well, wait. which uh, which do you think would work better? Um, and I can't I can't add any caveats into either one. No, I think you have to pick a position. Uh, then I would say uh, national set of standards. Okay, why? Um, if you could do it well, that's what you would pick. Yeah. If you could do it well. And, you know, some other things I was thinking in there was, um, you know, cause there's so many factors and whether it's school funding or whether it's class size or whether it's teacher compensation or, you know, all those sorts of things where if, if you don't provide any of those things and you're just like, we're teacher, you are responsible for all this. You know, what's, what's to say that you're even asking, a teacher or a school, something that's reasonable to accomplish. And I think that's a little bit of the dark road you can go down where that led to, as we've talked about, the demonization of teachers. Well, kids are doing well. We've given you a little bit more money. Where's our bang for our buck? We're not getting anything. But in terms of, I guess, why I chose the common core was it's a little bit, um, if they can be, and we've talked a little bit about the, the downfalls of the common core and the influence of special interests and how maybe... It it wasn't a perfect to start and be the implementation. It was also not perfect in terms of public back backlash and acceptance. But I do think there's something there in terms of a specific set of standards that if we could all nationwide agree on something that we were um, it, at least implementing with fidelity for an extended period of time and stuck to yeah. and stuck to and then judge. Okay, now how are we doing? Mm-hmm. Is it the lazy teacher? Right. Or is it, you know, any of a you know, myriad other factors, as Casey pointed out? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would go with, with Common Core or, you know, just generally na- a set of national standards. Mr. Sids? Uh, I used to be for national standards, and I'm, I'm, I've just moved away from it. I, I don't think that – we. I mean, our, our country's leaders can't even agree on what Mother's Day – when Mother's Day is. So, like, I, I, don't think, uh, I don't think that would be the way to go because it would just become a mess. And – uh, I, I don't. I don't even know if I can even answer the question. But then, uh, so you you have to be pro accountability. Then you yeah. have to do the pro. Your so if you're not standards, then you're pro accountability in this. Yeah, I think. Um, <laughs> and what does that accountability look like? Does that look like you know clo- closing schools, or does it? Look, no, it it, look it, like? it it looks like setting the bar. Um, okay, so we want on average eighty percent of kids to 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 be proficient. Um, 
on 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 X assessment. Right. And then folks, educators have to move kids there, have to get them there. Yeah, and I, I and on that note, then I, I'm with that. I, w- I would say with a caveat saying we know by and large. The, we, or or Casey, a- let, let me throw something else in. How about how about and I should have said this at first. How about if it wasn't just a <laughs> how about if it wasn't just a single performance standard, but it was also some measurement of growth? I, I would say I, I'm looking at reading and math, and you, or maybe even uh, I would say reading and math, and you're looking at specific parameters for what does reading proficiency look like from a nationwide standard, and then what does math uh, proficiency look like as a nationwide standard. You test them uh, only a few grades, not every not every grade level, and you hold schools and districts accountable for getting students to that point. I can get down with that, yeah. and I, you know, and I do think, and that's why it took me accountability at this point. I think is um, it's not a great term because there's a lot of connotations that go along with it, um, especially mine. Coercive right. accountability. Coercive accountability. <laughs> But at the end of the day, you know, teachers are responsible for kids learning. Right. That's just – that's the job. Um, right. And, and, a, and a lot of teachers want to be responsible. Yeah. A lot of teachers – uh, And they hang their hat on, look uh, look at all the progress my kids, kids have made. Correct. It, as they should because yep. they're doing right. a great job. Right. Um, right. You know, so th- in terms of accountability, I, l- I like it because it focuses on students – and how students are doing and right. not, not just, Oh, well the teacher's doing this or the teacher isn't doing, you know, it's like, well, how are the kids doing? And that should yeah, be I, at the center I, I of the your, conversation. I, get, I, I don't even know if we could do, if I even agree with the individual teacher accountability, because I recall being as a, as a social studies teacher, we're looking at the reading test that students were taking twice a year. And although it was very informative and instructive for me as an educator, I don't know that you could accurately measure the performance of a- an individual teacher like me in terms of how my students were doing in reading. Right, you're not the only factor. There's right, right. There's, There's so know. many variables, yeah. and they're not all taking reading. All right, you got you got the last word, Mr. Siddons. So, folks, check out Education Next: What to Make of the 2019 Results from the Nation's Report Card. Uh, it's a good piece. It's got some interesting takes on NAEP. And um, I know we'll be revisiting this in the future. We will indeed. All right, uh, Mr. Sids, we're going to keep you for the last segment for our interview with uh, Ricardo Cano. But you're going to come into the studio for that one, right? Oh, no, I won't be in the studio for that one. Okay. (laughs) You sure it's not going to sound like you're in the studio? (laughs) Well... Maybe I'll, I'll zoom over real quick okay. if I can get a kitchen pass. All right, let's do that. All right, all right. We'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll make it a quick break. Folks, don't go away. We've got a great interview coming up. We'll be back in just a minute. Thanks. All right, fellas, we are incredibly excited to have Ricardo Cano, who covers California education for Cal Matters? Ricardo joined Cal Matters in September 2018. I know Casey, you've been pursuing him, right, to get him on the show. That's right. That's right. Um, to Ed's not dead. He uh, used to work for the Arizona Republic, and as Central.com 
where he spent three years as the education reporter. Ricardo, thanks for coming on Ed's Not Dead. We're really excited to have you on the show. Happy to do it. Thank you for having me. So uh, the big news is, is you have uh, an incredibly detailed expose, Disaster Days, how megafires, guns, and other, tw- other 21st century crises are disrupting California schools. That was in Cal Matters. Um, and in the, in the article, Ricardo, I'm simplifying it a little bit, but you boil down uh, the interruption in students' education in California to three primary causes, wildfires or natural disasters, public safety threats, and uh, crumbling school infrastructure, which I was particularly interested in. Uh, it's a great piece. So um, tell, us, tell us what the biggest aha for you was as you started to research how much time students were missing in school because of these things. So um, we started this examination um, after the, the campfire last November, um, we calculated at the time that there were more than a million kids who were uh, who had been affected by emergency school closures uh, that week, uh, not only in Northern California, but um, Southern California as well with the, the Woolsey fire, I believe. And, you know, that really just didn't seem uh, normal. So we requested records from the California Department of Education and essentially built a database of school closures emergency school closures reported to the state um, over the last 17 years. And really what, what, the, what the data shows pretty unmistakably is just the, the, the broad impact that uh, recent wildfires have had on, on school systems in California. Um, you know, there's been schools, you know, there's been students who've lost 25 days of instruction uh, over the last four years, wildfires. Wow. Um, so I'm curious. I mean, California is a huge state, and it is it is one of the leaders in education. As California and Texas go, and American public ed- education, so go other states. But when you talk to various stakeholders, like PTSAs or school boards across the state. Had anybody put this together at the state level, or or were people just seeing this kind of through the through the lens of their own locality? Um, I think it's a bit of both. You know, California is a massive state, and certainly um, in recent wildfires, the Camp Fire and the Tubbs Fire, the state has been pretty proactive about addressing um, the the impacts. Uh, with regards to schools, um, you know, primarily with, um, uh, you know, creating protections, temporary protections uh, for schools that, you know, had um, schools who had campuses that burned to the ground and had, you know, thousands of kids move elsewhere because they lost their homes um, and preventing them from getting, uh, suffering a financial cut. And, but, um, you know, it, it can the state can be siloed um, as a native who, who grew up in the Central Valley and, and somebody who's you know now covering schools in the state um, and so I think when when we put together the data and started querying and started you know trying to uh, figure out what what the what the numbers were telling us um, you know there's just certainly an element of shock value uh, yeah the fact that there were there have been you know 
fires, far-flung fires in Calaveras County in 2015 that, you know, might have garnered coverage at the moment, um, but, you know, there were 50 kids who lost their homes in, in a fire that kept schools closed for for a week. And so um, there were certainly incidents that I hadn't even heard about um, that, that had pretty uh, devastating impact on educators and kids. So one of the issues that um, you talk about in the article um, is you all identified at least 370 instances in which schools had to close because of a breakdown um, in school facilities, which seems like a lot. Um, and then you talk about how the situation reflects the, the inequities in terms of funding in school districts. Um, and we talked a little bit, and it's a little bit, I think, out of our depth about how California funds the public schools um, in terms of the local bonds passed. But out of curiosity, um, one of your recommendations was not to kind of overhaul how California funds its public schools in order to address some of those inequalities. So out of curiosity, why why didn't you guys, um, you know, maybe address that or think that that was the best route to go in terms of evening out funding? Um, you know, we've, we've covered um, uh, inequities with school facilities funding over the last year um, and certainly have, have um, you know, tried to highlight, uh, you know, through data, through, through um, you know, human stories, uh, what these inequities look like. Um, and so, you know, part of part of what we hope to do with with the data um, and the stories that we published was, uh, you know, alert people to the fact that that you know there are inequities and that there are um, these disparities that that um, are you know affecting more schools that have uh, that, that are low property less that are you know with large populations of um, students in need and so um, the the number of closures uh, with regards to facilities breakdowns that we that, that we identified um, certainly wasn't um, a lot to give you some context um, our database has a, a total of 34,000 emergency school closure days wow. over the last 17,000 years. Wow. Over the last 17 years, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, trying to hyperbolize. Yeah. It's all right. Um, Sounded you know, good. Of, of, of those 34,000 um, days, uh, more than 60%, 21,000 days um, are, of, of school closures have been due to wildfires. And so I saw that um, data point. I was like, "Is that wait? Am I reading that right? <laughs> There's twenty over twenty one thousand days over the past you, since two thousand two, right?" Cer- yeah, certainly reading it right. Um, but <laughs> when we saw the the, you know, when we saw when we were looking through the data, um, you know, there's 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 inclement weather related closures, um, obviously that are just a fact of life in some pockets of the state. Um, but you know, seeing schools having to close for mold or um, E. coli in the water or, um, you know, gas leak um, or, you know, just um, these facility-related issues, uh, a a broken water well or or broken water line um, that, you know, pretty, when you pair it with the data that we gathered last year on local school bond spending, you know, show show a pretty clear uh, pattern of, of inequity. Yeah. Um, so I, at the risk of going too far down 
the rabbit hole of school funding because that's not why we had you on the show. But I was totally taken by this bar graph in the story. It, what are the politics underlying three quarters of school districts in the state of California having not passed a bond in 20 years? Um, is that just a reluctance on the part of, of localities to invest in school infra- infrastructure? Um, I think it's it's kind of a, a result of partly of, of the, the system that the state has had for, for a pretty long time. Proposition. Um, right. And so, um, <laughs> 51? You know, school, school facilities funding in California is largely, largely driven by local local bond funds and um as we've reported you know there's 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 a pretty vast spectrum of you know how much uh schools local districts have been able to um raise through 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 school bonds locally um the reason that they're a main driver is because for the longest time um schools you know the system um schools were essentially used local funds and, 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 and put bond, local bonds on the ballot so they could um, get matching funds from the state, state through the state bond. Right. And so one of the, one of the uh, positives that, um, that I've heard from um, sources and, and folks who are dialed into this is, you know, there's going to, the, the governor signed um, a state bond measure, $15 mm-hmm. billion dollars, um, for, K-12 and universities for the March primary ballot um, that is, you know, kind of pretty significantly um, changing the structure of how schools can access the bonds. There's, you know, going to be money earmarked for um, small school districts that um, pretty overwhelmingly make up the the list of districts that haven't passed the school bond over 20 years. Yeah. And so... You know, things are trending in the right direction, but certainly not to a point where people are saying that the problem has been solved. Okay. So and one of the things we, you, we mentioned just a minute ago, nearly 22,000 days closed since 2002 for fires alone, along with other disasters. How do you, what's the perception that you've gotten on the ground about the, the instructional time and how it's impacted rural, rural versus urban districts in California? In Northern California in particular, that's where you see uh, this pretty profound impact, um, not just with the number of days of instruction lost, um, but with, you know, just the fact that there are school systems um, that over the last four years have had to close for um, chunks of days because of, you know, not only wildfires that their their communities um, intimately experienced, but because of other wildfires that created hazardous air quality and, and made it um, impossible to have uh, productive days, productive and safe days worth of, of instruction. Right. Um, and so, you know, certainly um, urban areas have been impacted. Uh, San Diego County schools in the in the first part of, of this century, first decade, um, experienced pretty uh, massive fires in 2003 and 2007 that resulted in in uh, mass closures um, for schools. But um, the impact that we saw beyond the, the instructional days, particularly with um, 
you know, Santa Rosa City Schools and, and Middletown Unified, this community and uh, this uh, small school district in Northern California that we profiled in, a, in our coverage um, is is just the, the, the chronic um, needs for kids, chronic needs for teachers with regards to trauma yeah. um, and some pretty um, sobering uh, examples of, you know, how, you know, the fact that fires uh, keep resurfacing is, is placing a pretty um, significant burden on these schools. And you tweeted even last week that the the wildfires and blackouts kept a quarter million kids out of school wow. in California. Quarter million, that's crazy. Right. And so um, that was a result of the public safety power shutoff yes. by yeah, yeah. Um, the largest utility in the state in Northern California. But in Southern California, we also had the Saddle Ridge fire um, that resulted in, in uh, some schools in LA Unified um, having to close and schools in 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 um, the north northern LA County and Ventura County to close. We calculated that those closures affected about 108,000 kids. Um, one day closure, but when you look at local reports from um, those closures and even closures from last this recent last week, um, where uh, the Coachella Valley Unified School District um, in Palm Springs area. 18,000 kids, they had to close school for, for a day because of a mulch fire that created, you know, these pretty unbearable air quality concerns. Wow. And, and, and on that spectrum, you know, when you have, um, we, we've discussed kind of the, the significant impacts of, you know, school systems that are ravaged by fires and overnight, you know, they have 20%, uh, hundreds of, of kids and educators who, um, seemingly overnight become homeless and, and you have to yeah. deal with all these um, pretty challenging circumstances. But on the other end, you know, there's there's instances of, that we saw the last two weeks where schools have had to close for, for a day temporarily, but it's still, you know, it's still this pretty, um, you know, fairly damaging uh, experience to teachers and, and students. Yeah. Um, read local reports for the Saddle Ridge fire and um, the Coachella Valley mulch fire related school closures and a constant that um you see from from folks who are interviewed is parents and teachers is um you know <laughs> maybe the school should have closed sooner or maybe more schools should have closed um maybe you know <laughs> in LAUSD in particular there were um educators who uh, were pretty critical of you know the fact that when schools resumed when when instruction resumed for the schools that closed there were there was still, um, you know, soot and ash um, and, and smoke damage that, um, you know, wasn't conducive to, um, you know, proper day's learning. Thanks again for Cal Matters reporter Ricardo Cano for coming on Ed's Not Dead, his article Disaster Days. We're going to tweet that out and you can find Ricardo at by Ricardo Cano. Uh, this is quite an expose, right, fellas? Yes, it is. Yep. Very extensive, and I think there's a lot more to come. Yep. He was a great guest. Hopefully, we'll get him on when he delves a little deeper into this database they've created. Yeah. Yeah. All right, folks, don't go anywhere. Thanks again to Ricardo Cano, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Ed's Not Dead. We're still here. This is Robbie Dodd with my co-host, Mr. Crable, and Mr. Siddons on the phone. Hey. This has been this has been good. It's been nice to have you on the phone. 
I know. You guys were ready to kick me out for paternity leave purposes, <laughs> no, we, we, but I, I stuck myself back in. We, we, we think you've earned a, your, a, a legit shot back on being, being in the show. Yeah, we'll, invite you, we'll invite you in the studio next time. Oh, good, good. <laughs> All right. We want to thank uh, Ricardo Cano again for that awesome interview on the impacts of the wildfires that are still going on in California. And, yeah. and this most, the last, the last couple of weeks, this recent spate, um, I know. Had... I will say, I will say that, uh, I would like to say that his reporting, yeah. I'm going to plug him. His education reporting is outstanding. And in a, in a, in an era that newspapers are declining and, and newsrooms are declining, he's not only doing the great investigative reporting that needs to be done for, in general, but he's doing education reporting, which is you know few and far between. Yeah, I mean he's he he does legitimate investigative reporting. I mean that was an exhaustive piece on the on the impacts of the fires. And, uh, and we, all, we need to get him back on the show. And although you know clearly we don't live in California, I do find it interesting what is happening there because it is such a big state that it could be a country in and of itself. So yeah. looking at California as a microcosm for. You know many other things, whether they're experiments or policies or whatever. I do think is is rather instructive. Um, you know, and uh, things like wildfires are certainly not going away, as well as you know other disasters that could potentially impact students. So that's you know just for me, I guess, why I find it of particular interest, even though it doesn't necessarily hit home in in Merlin. And from a from a, uh, a climate change perspective, I mean, states are having to grapple with the change of, of our weather. Uh, there's a classroom on the Chesapeake Bay that was just in the Washington Post recently. It's a Virginia island uh, close to Crisfield, Maryland. That's It's an it's a outdoor school that's closing its doors because it's sinking, basically. The, the waters are basically consuming the, the, the area that's surrounding it. Yep. But by the way, speaking of California, since we just did the interview, um, if you... On, on NAEP, eighth grade math and reading gains, uh, if you look at scores 2019 minus 2003 scores, Cal- yeah. California in math is plus nine. In reading, it's plus eight. Wow. Uh, Kansas, which we all know about six or seven years ago, adopted a, 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 a total system of austerity yeah. uh, with, with taxation. Kansas is minus two and minus three in math and reading, respectively. Wow, I didn't even see that. Money matters, uh, you know. Yep, money. I think that's at least a factor. Absolutely, in results. All right, yep. it is quiz time, and we are so lucky, folks, to have Mr. Siddons on the phone. And I do believe uh, on our last show, episode four, I I I basically routed you, Mr. Crable. You, you swept. <laughs> I did. I don't think I got a single question right. <laughs> First right. time that's happened in three years. So, it, sure. and, uh, so it's time for time for Peter to redeem himself. <laughs> All right. So what do you got? Wow. For, what do you got for us, Mister Sids? Is All it right, so, is it the so, free is it the Frida quiz? It's the Frida quiz. No. Okay. It, it, it is. It is. Uh, you know, we have a, another debate coming up, a Democratic debate, oh. and it's not. I'm, I'm not going to give you the quiz <laughs> that you got. All mad you at should me about. just see my face when you just. <laughs> said I know. That. I know. I know. But listen, it's going to be a good one because it's really about you know, uh, about the, the education platforms of the various candidates. Okay. And you get to try to guess which candidate, uh, with a little bit of help from my quiz, uh, formulation, which candidate uh, supports it or which candidate came up with it. And then I have a, 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 Rob, he's not going to get any right, by the way. (laughs) 
Yes, you will. You might. Yeah, I, I will. Like, no, yes, I, I will. I admit, I think this is my redemption. No, I, is, I've, 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 as, as, as I've passed fifty, I've become largely apolitical. <laughs> I, haven't, I, haven't, I, haven't, I haven't followed this stuff much. So go ahead. All right. So ready. Number one. And, and then I have an oddball question at the end that uh, I just thought was interesting. Okay. All right. Ready. Ready. Number one. We have we have the next debate coming up November twentieth. And uh, I, I think it's important to watch. You know, there will be 27 people on the stage, so you get to see all these people. Uh, according to Vox Research, about time the debates have spent on each topic, where is education in that top 10 list? A, it isn't. B, first. C, fifth. Or D, tenth. I'll go with D, tenth. I will go with it is not. A, it is not. It doesn't even make the top 10. Number one. It's healthcare. Number five is, or fifth is foreign policy and ten, criminal justice. There you go. Medicare for all, baby. All right. Yes, sure. Uh, so the next few questions are, uh, I went through a bunch of the candidates' uh, portfolios, I suppose, on, on, on what they're going to plan on doing for education. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you a little bit of hint as to who the candidate is, and you get to guess which candidate announced it. You ready? Yeah, I'm on it. All right. This crunchy candidate announced he would offer teachers a minimum $60,000 per year starting salary on top of a new tax deduction for educators who pay for school supplies out of their own pocket. Bernie Sanders. I will also go with Bernie Sanders. That is Bernie Sanders, correct. All right, we're tied. And Mr. Crable, Mr. Crable, let me say that first. You gave it away with the crunchy. I know, when you said crunchy. Uh, See, there's a little hint in each one. That was a good hint. This candidate, a mayor of a small city, is leaning heavily on... As heavily on Title I funds, writing in a recently unveiled rural policy platform that he would dramatically increase Title I funding to support higher teacher pay in rural schools. Uh, Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> I think that would be Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> Pete Buttigieg is correct. Okay. All right, I get that one because right. Mr. Crable had a hard time with the last name. Points uh, so deducted for, for pronunciation. Finish, you have to wait for me to finish the whole thing before you guess. All right, All right. T- Title One funding for rural schools. Yes, okay. specifically rural schools. Okay, interesting. All right, and, we, and we've talked about some of the difficulties that rural schools uh, face. Yes, we have. Yeah, I think in, yeah. In, when when uh, Kathy Hoffman was on, we talked about Arizona. Maybe yep. anyway, that's yep. right. All right, next, this candidate, longtime resident of the Blue Hen State. Unveiled a $100 billion plan specifically targeted at schools in low-income neighborhoods. Uh, that would be Joe B. Is it Gr- that is correct. Joe Biden. Is it Grandpa Joe? Papa Joe? What's it? Uncle Joe? Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. Uncle Joe. Sorry. Uncle Joe. This next one. This now-exited candidate planned to raise even more money to fund public schools via a $1 tax on every $1,000 in stocks purchased on Wall Street called... From the so-called Wall Street speculation tax, expected to raise about five hundred billion dollars for a new fund that states and school districts could tap to offer pay increases and close funding shortfalls. Beto. Yeah. Well, since he said that, I'll go with. You know, I thought it was Beto. John Delaney. That would be Beto O'Rourke, former Texas congressman, ex-Senate candidate. Robbie's on the board. That was a. That was. The wildest guess. Because <laughs> oh, really? you know why? Because he's, he's the only person I could name that was dro- exited, yeah. dropped out. Yeah, I was yeah. like, crap, who's exited? I don't <laughs> even know if John Delaney's still on the, the race. Okay. Right. He's a guy with a name. <laughs> All right. All right. Next one. This Golden State candidate has said she would offer a $15,000 pay raise 
and an average of $13,500 salary bump to educators around the country. Oh yeah, this one got us. This was got us in trouble in the past because of because of your 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 supporting specific political candidates. That would be Mr. Krabs, Kamala Harris. Is it Kamala or Kamala? Kamala. Kamala. Kamala Harris. Correct. Yeah, she's big, she's big on on salary increases, right? Yeah, she is. She she was the first one to put it out. Okay. The answer to your last question is Elizabeth Warren. Oh no, it's not actually. But <laughs> last question is. This candidate, also uh, a, a former mayor, I should say, just an ex-mayor, released a people-first education proposal calling for giving teachers up to $10,000 in pay-boosting tax break. It would offer all teachers a minimum of $2,000 credit and provide even larger amounts to those working at schools in low-income areas. Mike Bloomberg. Oh, nice. I couldn't even think of a, a former mayor. Yeah, you're probably right. Is that correct? Uh, it's incorrect. It's Julian Castro. Oh, Okay. He was the mayor of San Antonio, wasn't he? Yes, That's correct. And and Bloomberg's not even the race, but uh, and, and, and Bloomberg is is unapologetically pro charter. Yes, he is. Yep, uh, pro charter and anti big gulp. Uh, <laughs> all right, last question. This is the the oddball question. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. And it's and it's completely out of left field. You ready? Yeah. As I was trying to come up with quizzes the last time. I was trying to find different topics, and, and I could only find one. And uh, anyway, how much of Utah's income tax goes to public education? Is it A, 50%, B, 60%, C, 70%, Whoa. or D, 100%? Well, it's over 50%. Uh, that's amazing. So I, I'm assuming that – I was waiting for the lowball answer. I'm, I'm assuming that they use income tax instead of property taxes. I'll go with 60%. I'll go with 70%. Both incorrect. It's 100%. Whoa. 100% oh. of Utah's income tax goes to public education. That's interesting. And right now they're trying to uh, put it on a voter referendum. There's a group that would like voters to end Utah's 90-year-old constitutional guarantee that all of our income taxes fund education. Yeah, I see Robbie looking up, but that was my next question. Uh, how, how did Utah do on? Uh, on you know, not not great, but not terrible. Plus, plus four and plus three oh, over, over, over the last twenty years in math and reading. Huh. Not bad. Yep. It's it's interesting uh, the dichotomy between your first question about how it's not been discussed in the top ten issues at all. Uh, yes, but yet every well, all the candidates you mentioned, plus some more, all have pretty sweeping. Uh, reform ideas about how to either pay teachers more or put more money in general towards education. It's just listen. They know where the political winds are blowing. Yeah, and they they have seen the fact that from Kentucky to West Virginia to California to Boston, that teachers are not particularly happy with with what is going on federally and and in some cases, many cases statewide. They're not going to take it. They're not going to take it. They're just not going to take it anymore. <laughs> uh, what year did that song come out? 1986. Oh, that is excellent. How'd you get is that? That, really that was my quiz question. Oh, yeah. Wow. I, I think I think it was it was. Uh, it's Twisted Sister. We look at would you, would you look right. would you look it up? It might be 85. I, you, it was a total 
or even 84 84 84 yeah i was i was in ninth grade what album was it off of uh i was negative one do not know that i do know that the lead singer was d snyder yes stay hungry d snyder the great d snyder who was a pretty successful dj after that yeah that's funny. Um, you know what? I've, I, I have an observation about the new show format with the call in with with Casey on in, on the call in. Yes, he he seems to talk more. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm wondering if 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 my annoying presence actually <laughs> Crable's nodding that maybe maybe I maybe you having to sit next to me in the studio it it shuts you down. I, I, I'm not going to confirm or deny that information. <laughs> I'm in a really good mood. I was thinking the constant ribbing just wears him down into a petulant state yeah, where he doesn't I, want to I, say yeah. anything. There might be something. That's, that's really what it is. <laughs> it's kind of making me feel bad a little bit. <laughs> You'll get over in like seven seconds. It, <laughs> See it, it's, it's performance anxiety. <laughs> All right. Um, thanks, everybody, for tuning into the show. You can find us at Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter. Visit our website at edsnotdead.com. And Mr. Craves, you want to tell them about, tell our audience, the swag giveaway is not over. No. Yeah. In fact, I ordered more and bigger stickers. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. So go ahead and tweet us and tag a bunch of people, 5, 10, 25, whatever. Give us a review on iTunes and let us know. Uh, definitely looking to get the stickers out there. Uh, and as we found out, I'll send you a ton of stickers. <laughs> So more than you could That's ever great. possibly do anything with. So you'll be happy about that. All right. So so share the good news about Ed's Not Dead with your friends. Uh, we have more and more downloads every month, which we are very grateful to our audience. We do it because we hope and think that you like the show. And right. we love it. And we love it. Um, right. If you want to congratulate Mr. Siddons and Sarah Siddons on – their new baby, Frida Siddons. You can tweet Mr. Siddons at CH Siddons. Right? <laughs> right? Right? You won't see any pictures of her. No pictures. She will remain a mystery. As she should. That's right. You should, uh, you should, I'm sure there's like a Snapchat filter or something out there that turns you into a baby face. I think you, sh- <laughs> you should do that and tweet that out and be like, welcome, Frida. <laughs> I, I don't think she looks like me that much. She I, looks like a baby. All babies look, like, look babies. like babies. I'm gonna get my I'm gonna get my first look this weekend, so I'm psyched. Yes, I'll, you I'll, are. Yep, I'll make up my mind. Um, Casey, thanks for calling in. Congratulations again to you and Sarah. We are very happy for you guys. Yeah, thank you so much for letting me call in. I appreciate it. All right, folks, we will see you next time for episode six in our third season of Ed's Not Dead. Spread the word about the best education podcast out there. Thanks for joining us. We'll talk to you soon.